opera was Strauss's first collaboration with the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Ready for the answer? Elektra was the first opera in which Strauss collaborated with the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal. In this last part of our series, Opera and Greek Drama, we'll conclude our journey of Greek drama after the Trojan War with arguably the most violent and bloodthirsty of Greek myths, the saga of Agamemnon. Lecture of Matthew Timmermans will begin by returning to Gluck, looking at his opera Amphogenie en Tauride, written in 1779, one of the many operas he wrote for the French stage after his career in Italy. Then he will discuss one of opera's most powerful, beautiful, and disturbing musical adaptations, Strauss's Electra. Lecture four, we're talking about Electra. And so we're going to look at the tragedy lyrique, and we're going to look at Gluck's Iphigenie en Alide. And lastly, we'll talk about one of my favorite operas, which is Hofmannsthal's and Ernst Strauss's Electra. Uh, let's get started talking a little bit more about our friend Gluck. So as I'm, when we last were hanging out with Gluck, uh, he was in Vienna premiering his Orfeo, which was quite a success. And following his successes, he then ended up coming to Paris, which as I've mentioned is, at this time at least, in the 18th century and into the 19th century, was the place one made their career in opera. Uh, it was the hardest, hardest critics and the hardest audiences, despite the fact that opera was obviously blooming in Italy. What's interesting about the fact that Gluck came to Paris is the fact that he gallicized or Frenchified opera seria, right, with Vienna and Orfeo. And now he's bringing back these same ideas um, that, in a way, Frenchified Italian opera now to France, where they see it as him Italianizing their opera. Uh, and I think it's an interesting thread given what I've been saying about how people use Greek tragedy or Greek drama to different means throughout operatic history, however they want to interpret it and then use it to their own dramatic purpose, whatever that is. So something that might, you might find very interesting is that he arrived in 1773 uh, uh, in Paris, but it was actually at the invitation of his former singing pupil in Vienna, which some of you may know who it is perhaps. It was Princess Marie Antoinette. So Gluck was very successful in Paris. Uh, after seeing uh, Iphigenie en Aulide, which is the first tragedy lyrique we'll talk about. So this opera was one of the first that Gluck wrote specifically for Paris. And it is based on a, a play and the, um, the tragedy, actually, that is before Iphigenie en Tauride. And so in this story, what, it's actually when it's prophesized that King Ag uh, Agamemnon, uh, who will become sort of a figure throughout all these stories, even though he never really shows up in any of the operas we talk about, but he's constantly mentioned, for example, in Electra and also in Tauride, even though he doesn't show up. But he does show up 
in this opera, which we're actually not going to listen to. Um, but anyway, the plot of this opera is that it's prophesied that King Agamemnon must sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenie, to guarantee fair winds for his king's fleet en route to Troy, which actually happens in the myth it's based on. And what ends up happening is that at the end, he does end up sac... Oh, I should also mention, I'm sorry, I know this becomes very complicated, but Iphigenie is the sister of Electra and Chrysotomus, who are the daughters of King Agamemnon. So that's how all this links together. And yes, you're wondering, where is she in Electra? Why isn't she mentioned? Well, Hoffmannsthal just thought, eh, that's too complicated. Let's get rid of that. But anyway... Gluck also apparently wasn't very happy with the original story, and so he significantly changes the end of the original myth by having Diana, the goddess that is, change her mind about the sacrifice and thus saves Iphigenie at the end of that opera. So how <laughs> we'll, we'll get to how that impacts the next opera. I also wanted to just review a few things about Gluck and Greek tragedy before we start talking about the music in this opera. Gluck's new aesthetic was inspired by the Florentine Camerata's ideas about Greek tragedy. And this was a return to purity, it was a return to economy and dramatic power as a result. And we know that he uses Greek myths and tragedies to achieve this goal. All right, this brings us to Iphigenie en Tauride. So what's interesting about this opera and why I've sort of tied in the plot of Aulid and then also what the principles of Greek tragedy and how Gluck was trying to use them is because in Gluck's early Paris operas, such as Aulide, as I mentioned, they don't actually conform to these ideals very well. And I mean, there's a number of reasons for this. He wasn't super popular at first, so he was probably trying to compose operas that would be immediately successful with these audiences, and that didn't mean pushing on revolutionary ideas. Uh, and by the time he wrote Iphigenie, it was his fifth opera. So at this point, he had a very secure place with the French public. So he could try some different things, which we're going to explore. Uh, scholars would argue that in this opera, musical effects are employed solely for dramatic purposes, and the interaction between text and music is extremely close. Of course, we'll see with later composers, such as Strauss, that dynamic is changed a lot more. And also, one might argue that uh, the drama is much faster. But I will say that Iphigenie is actually quite a short opera for Gluck. I mean, it's only about an hour and 30 minutes. Uh, so, important to note, there's no more ornate arias and there's no more divitismon, uh, distractions, basically, is what the English word is for, so things like dances and such forth. I want to tell you a little bit of history of how this came to be, and then I'm going to tell you about how the plot takes off from Aulide, which I had mentioned before. So what I learned recently, and I had not known before, and I thought was very interesting, is that Iphigenie en Tarid came as a marketing ploy by the director of the Paris Opera in 1778. So at this time, audiences were arguing over who was the better composer. Was it Gluck or was it Niccolo Piccini, who was another German import who has a very Italian-sounding name? <laughs> Initially, when Gluck learned that Piccini was setting the same libretto, he actually abandoned the project. He did not want to have that direct competition. However, at the urging of the director of the Paris Opera, for he thought they should have some healthy competition, they agreed to write the same story, but with different libretti, so different texts. Gluck's premiered first, actually by mistake, because there was a delay with Piccini's opera due to some complications, and also probably, according to the librettist, it just wasn't what they had wanted yet. And Gluck's became so famous uh, following its premiere that basically Piccini's wasn't premiered until many years later because he did not want to be compared. 
So, so much for healthy competition. Uh, so, what is the plot of this opera that I've sort of been teasing you with this entire time? Despite the fact that Grupp changed the ending of Aulide to save Iphigenie, now we find her trapped on Toride, like in the original tragedy, because Diana turns her into a deer right before she's about to be sacrificed. So the deer is sacrificed, but Iphigenie is, I'm going to use quotes, saved because she's taken to Toride, where she is now a priestess of sacrifice, which she doesn't really enjoy. So <laughs> saved, in air quotes. Um, so we find her trapped there with other priestesses uh, in a very similar situation who are under King Theos. And the opera here, where we enter and come to meet her, it begins with a storm, basically illustrating her turbulent psyche at the moment, but also what she's about to tell us, which is reflecting on a dream she had about what has happened to her family. And so what this, this scene I want to show, just because I want to point out some of the connections between Greek tragedy and this opera, is Iphigenie and her priestesses begging the gods to protect them from this storm. And so what you're going to notice here is the use of the chorus in this opera is very different from how choruses were used at this time in the sense that they are very active and almost like little soloists in a way where they constantly communicate with Iphigenie um, and they have little solos where they come out and talk to her, which is actually a strain and similar to uh, the way Greek tragedy would have worked, where the chorus would have interacted with the principals. So it's interesting to see how Gluck is applying this now to opera. Another thing to note is there's no overture to this opera. We literally have this uh, little or orchestral flurries, which are depicting the beginning of the storm, and then suddenly the storm begins and the chorus comes out and takes the lead. So at this time with a normal Gluck opera, you would normally have a five-minute overture which would play and so, but what we get to see here is really how uh, Gluck is shorning opera of all of perhaps its excess, the excesses that he sees there, and really reducing the drama to its bare minimum. Um, all right, let us see what this actually sounds like. I'm going to literally start here at the very beginning of the opera so you can get an idea of how short that orchestral prelude is, and then right into the chorus coming out and praying to the gods.
I think it's quite the opening scene. It's fast-paced, and, and I think it's very exciting, especially for this period where, I mean, this is the uh, end of the 18th century, right? I mean, we're not even into the 19th century where they start to really get rid of those overtures. Uh, so what happens next is that the storm dies down. Iphigenie uh, remains troubled by the dream that she had, and so she's going to describe it to her priestesses. And what she saw was that her mother, Clytemnestra, was murdering her father, and then her brother, Orestes, was killing her mother which many of you would know from Electra, if you saw it, the opera by Strauss. And finally, though, a twist is that uh, Iphigenie saw herself killing Orestes, her brother. So that upsets her greatly, obviously, because she cares for her brother, and that has yet to come to pass, or will it even come to pass? We do not know. Um, so what she does at this point is, after describing that dream, she then prays to Diana, the goddess, to reunite her with her brother. And that will happen in the course of the opera, although it's very slow for them to realize who each other is, as seems to be the case in most of these operas between Orestes and his, and his siblings. But again, what we'll see in this piece, which is less, uh, is not an aria, but is actually recitative, because that is where most of the action, as I was discussing with uh, one of the audience members before, in French opera, most of the action happens in the recitative. And this is actually what a lot of the French audience members in the 18th century, at least, would go for it. They, it would be, the orchestra would have a lot more energy and interest as it followed whatever the character was saying in the recitative, which is much more flexible. And then the arias would be very simple. They'd be very pared down, short, um, not very florid, as you might see in, the, in Handel's operas at the time. And this was how the French in, liked their opera, yes, but also saw themselves as different from the Italians. And so this differentiation was very important. And I'm sure many of you may have noticed if you um, listen to Italian and French opera fr um, from this time and how they differ. Anyway, uh, so what I want you to notice here is particularly how active the orchestra suddenly becomes. I mean, the orchestra was very active in that previous scene, obviously. But how active the orchestra is in changing its colors to accompany Iphigenie's change in mood. And then after, I will show you an aria to show you the difference of how simple the aria might be in contrast to the retrospective. All right?
So now I want to contrast this. You, you could tell there's lots of variation. I mean, it clearly wasn't an aria. There wasn't a melody or anything like that, right? But it was constantly, the orchestra was constantly changing to show when she was nervous or excited or calmed by the presence of her family. Now, in this aria, she's, um, as I mentioned, uh, begging for the help of Diana. And so here, well, I'll let you listen to it. Maybe, maybe you will, but you'll notice there's very little ornamentation or anything like that, which you might have heard in Italian opera at this time. It's very plain melody. I mean, I guess I could have programmed a, a handle aria behind it to really get my point across, and I'm, I'm sort of regretting that now. But in the future, I will, I will do that. But I think, I think you got the idea from what we've explored thus far. And that's, that's the ideal that Gluck was going for, really, with this opera. It was really about portraying the story, um, but that also mixed with uh, the French aesthetic of the time, which for some reason was simplicity of aria. I, I, I can't explain it beyond what I know. <laughs> Uh, so with the reception, I thought it would be interesting to see some quotes of what people thought of it at the time. And Baron Grimm, for example, said, When I hear Iphigenie, I forget that I am at the opera. I believe that I am listening to Greek tragedy. And then another contemporary critic apparently denied that the libretto was based on De La Touche's play, which was um, a French interpretation of the play, because it followed Euripides' drama so closely. So. People really thought that Gluck was the operatic inheritor of Greek tragedy, is basically to sum up what the comments are um, saying. And that was partially why Berlioz then was such a, um, a Gluck fanatic in the 19th century during the revival. Uh, I also put some of the differences between, just because they're saying it's so close to the Euripides, I thought I would put some of what the similarities and the differences are. And so Giach, who is the uh, librettist, uh, Gluck's librettist, he cut a lot of the subplots from the De La Touche libretto, uh, as well as the confidants, which we know the French absolutely adored. So all those subplots and love triangles were gone, and it was reduced back to the four characters that were in Euripides. Uh, he also introduced the chorus of priestesses, who are not in the original drama, but basically replaced the chorus that would have been in the original. Um, and then he restored, apparently, two Euripidean scenes, and also the concluding deus ex machina. Uh, so all things that definitely made people think it was more like Greek tragedy. All right, now to, you can tell I'm already more excited about it next time. I apologize about that, but this is, I, I really do love this opera. Um, so first I want to talk about Hoffmannsthal's Elektra, because as I'm sure many of you know, Elektra was originally a play that was written by Hoffmannsthal that was um, based on the Euripides, and uh, he, he, but, and then Strauss came along later after seeing the play and decided this has to be set to music. And Hoffmannsthal, who was very interested 
in the combination of word and music because Hofmannsthal was very interested in Greek tragedy and those ideas which as we know uh, uniting word and music was very important to it so he was very interested in becoming a librettist although for those of you who don't know about the sort of tumultuous relationship between Hofmannsthal and Strauss that was a difficult relationship because Hofmannsthal struggled to uh, struggled to give up his um, authority as a playwright when trying to write text for an opera but Nonetheless, uh, writing, uh, putting Elektra to music, Strauss was incredibly successful. So I just wanted to say a few words about Hoffmannsthal's Elektra, though, first. Number one, it was inspired by Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, which was a text that was written, uh, well, in the century before this. Uh, and so, like Nietzsche, he believed that myths could modernize and reinvigorate society, which is something we sort of suggested was happening before in the 19th century, but Hoffmannsthal and especially Nietzsche is very vocal about that this is why they believe they're uh, reviving these so that they can take shape, or it, which is an idea that does go back to Aristotle. Um, and so in embracing Nietzsche's tragic Dionysian force, uh, Hoffmannsthal, that is, rejects the idealized neo-Socratic mid-19th century notions of Greek tragedy. This is the sort of white marble, ancient-looking um, portrayals of Greek tragedy. So this idea of them being ancient uh, mythic characters that are beyond us, they want to get rid of and making them human, psychological, and vibrant characters. And so his first successful venture, though, with this was Electra. And so for him, when he wrote this play, the main expressive force was not necessarily the text, but rather gesture and the way the characters move. We can see this in the opera with uh, the rituals, such as uh, Electra's daily howling, when they describe her running around the castle howling all the time, the sacrifices that the mother is doing in order to sleep, uh, the burial of the murder weapon, that's the murder weapon that killed Agamemnon, as well as the processions, and of course, finally, the dance at the very end. And so for Hofmannsthal, he believed that these offered what language lacked, um, where words are indirect, gesture for him is immediate. Uh, and for this, this also for him came from ancient Greek theater because it for him embodied uh, a combination of all the arts, being acting, gesture, ritual, myth, and dance, of course. And in comes uh, Strauss, and we can kind of see why Strauss had an attraction to Hofmannsthal's play because he, in his previous opera, which was Salome, uh, so Strauss too challenged this sort of ideal notions of the neo-Socratic white marble Greek culture and this was bringing out Salome as this um, sexually active and also incredibly disturbing character. Uh, and we also might remember that in Salome, dance is also used as gesture. Now more on what Hoffmannsthal was trying to achieve with Elektra when he wrote it. Well, for him, he actually once likened Electra to a taunt chain of heavy, massive iron links. Uh, and if it was taunt to begin with, which as we know, all Greek drama is apparently attempting to do, Strauss's reworking actually cut nearly 40% of the dialogue and eliminated extraneous characters, if there could even be extraneous characters. And so his cuts end up focusing sharply on the triangular character relationships between Electra, her, uh, her sister, Chrysotomus, and their mother, Clytemnestra. And so, as I mentioned before, Greek drama is all about simplicity and dramatic force. 
So one of the things that links this opera so intricately together, despite all these massive cuts in dialogue, is the use of leitmotifs, which often, which not only, as we talked about with Wagner, bring the chorus into the orchestra, because in Elektra there is a chorus, very briefly, at the beginning and at the end, but overall the orchestra, like in Wagner, tends to be the, cho uh, the chorus that interacts with the singers and tells us what they're thinking about, and also perhaps what might come to pass. So one of the leitmotifs that is perhaps the most obvious, the loudest, and also the most exciting, of course, is the Agamemnon motif. And this opens the opera and it ends the opera. And so Agamemnon is the father that we never get to see in this opera because the moment the opera starts, we meet Electra and she is completely distraught over her father having been killed by her mother and no one seems to care. And Electra is stuck in a sort of Freudian, Freudian psychosis where she can't move past until her mother is destroyed so that the family can then move on and be released from this trauma. So Agamemnon basically haunts this entire opera. So here's that first uh, leitmotif. So the Agamemnon motif goes off. And then this is that brief moment I mentioned with the chorus, which very literally tells us what has gone on before and also how Electra is wandering the house like a mad cat um, until, you know, following her father's death and she looks, doesn't look great. And, you know, they say all these terrible things basically about her. And so what happens when they say that, though, they then eventually will talk about um, the murder that's happened, and there's a, a, a motif that happens for that, and then after it, the axe motif. So the, it says, basically the orchestra saying the murder, and then the axe is saying how the murder happened. So I'm gonna go from the very beginning of this scene, because this all happens in the span of like two minutes. Uh, so we're gonna hear the Agamemnon motif, some chatting. So the, that's the murder taking place. And then the axe is the, okay, so we got that. Let's add another one onto it. So next we have Elektra's motif, which will happen after, which is the, so we're gonna listen to that same scene again. And then we're gonna, so we're gonna hear Agamemnon, you're gonna hear them chatting, and then you're gonna hear murder, axe motif, Elektra. And one thing, I just wanna add a little anecdote in here when I can between music. Um, and something interesting to know, because we did talk about Ariadne, Ariadne off Naxos, right? And we talked about how Hofmannsthal wanted a very simplistic aesthetic musically with discrete set numbers, and Strauss was much more about the Wagnerian complexity, length, and um, overall power of the orchestra, right? And so apparently, though, when, with regard to Elektra, years later, uh, Strauss was actually embarrassed um, that apparently Hofmannsthal suggested that uh, a lot of the drama was actually handicapped by instrumental polyphony. And so he, Hoffmansall that is, later suggested tongue-in-cheek that it should be conducted like Mendelssohn, like fairy music. So what we're about to listen to, as I mentioned before, we're going to hear Agamemnon, chat, murder and axe motif, and then right after, Elektra. Elektra. 
Um, so I just wanted to, I keep feeling like I have to bring back my, my thesis here, which is we're talking about Greek drama. So one of the things, as we saw here, there is a chorus, and the chorus is retelling past events, as we've seen happen in several Gluck operas, for example, right? But then we also have this idea of monologue that we've talked about, for example, with um, in Les Troyennes, um, with uh, Dido, as well as Cassandra. And we also have this idea of prophecy, uh, the, the idea that leitmotifs can tell us what's going to happen in the future, but also the characters are often telling us what is going to happen in the future. And at the beginning, we have this all happen with Electra. And Electra has her first aria, which a lot of people find overwhelming because she basically screams at you for about 10 minutes, uh, which I find delightful. It's the first thing that I experienced with this opera. And in that aria, she basically sings, or at least the orchestra plays, and some of them she sings, all of the major leitmotifs that will play out over the course of the opera. And so I want to explore some of those um, with you. So we're going to listen to her monologue. And at the beginning of the monologue, it first plays her motif, which we heard, the bum, ba da 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 bum. And then we're going to hear the Agamemnon motif. Well, you, there's other leitmotifs in there, but if, <laughs> it takes a very long time to go through all the leitmotifs in this opera. One of the ones you heard was the bum, 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 bum. Oh, I can't even sing it right now, apparently. Dun, 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 dun. The, the one that was in the bass going over, that's the legacy of the family. It will come up a few times, but it's not, for the moment, it's not as essential. But I thought I'd let you know about it nonetheless. The one that's important that we're about to come to, though, is the family love motif. And I think this one's important mainly because a lot of people find Electra as a very um, harsh and ugly opera in a lot of ways. But this motif and the scene which it um, foreshadows is frankly one of the most beautiful things I think exists in all of opera. So I wanted to, I'd like to share this with you at the beginning so that perhaps I can change your thoughts about Electra and make you think it is a beautiful opera as well. <laughs> Um, so, what we're going to see now is she's going to be she's obviously talking about her father Agamemnon, and she is mourning his death. And as it comes up, she then reflects 
on the family and this family love motif will play in the orchestra. Uh, so you heard the motif, though, is the, um, that's the, the family love motif. Um, OK. So that motif comes back when Electra finally meets and recognizes her brother, Orest, who, which is Orestes in, in English, uh, who she thought was dead because he reported that to uh, their mother, Clytemnestra, in the previous scene so that he could sneak into the house and then kill the mother. And so what you're going to hear, well, I started a little earlier because the, or, the, the motif basically hints. It does a little part of it as, as he, she's saying, who are you? And he's saying, you don't recognize me? And we hear the family motif kind of going off briefly. And then he tells her who she is and she shrieks. Um, and then after the motif plays out fully and she sings along with it. And it's just this beautiful moment.
I'm sure you all heard the, the sort of snippets when she was saying, who are you? I don't know who you are. It was playing little snippets of it. And then when the explosion of arrest happened, it ended up being contorted within all of the other motifs that were like motifs that were happening at that moment. So it didn't sound like the motif, but it was in there in that explosion of that, that magical chromatic chord that happened there. And then after it was playing the, the ba -da -da, ba -da -da, he was just using snippets of the long melody and cutting them into bits as the under part of her singing it. One of my favorite moments in all of opera. That's, I just enjoyed the moment to get to talk about it. All right, so let's go back to our axe motif that I mentioned. Another brilliant part about this opera is the way that it makes you, uh, it, the way it uses suspense because you know what's coming and yet you're constantly waiting for two hours basically for arrest to kill this woman. And it becomes especially uh, intense after uh, arrest and Electra finally meet and you know what's going to happen, right? And you have these 20 minutes where he's going to go into the house and it's going to happen and oh my god what's going on and then Electra realizes she didn't give him the axe and so part of sort of Greek prophecy is that it has to be done exactly with whoever was killed before the same weapon that they were killed with has to be used to kill to redeem and kill the person who killed the other person basically so she freaks out about it right and of course this is moment of like oh my god is, she, is he going to do it then is it, is it going to happen um, and what happens so, it's so wonderful here is that the axe motifs come back where she's thinking about the axe but also listening to hear if if uh, Clytemnestra is being hit with an axe or a weapon at all um, and it's this great moment where Strauss furnishes all of the music to tell the story here Um, a wonderful scene, and then of course, it, 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 anyway, it continues on through as she then waits for um, the Claytonester's lover to also be killed by Orest after she invites him into the house. Uh, so now to the perhaps one of the most important and, me important and memorable parts of this opera is the dance at the very end that a lot of people kind of look on perplexed, wondering A, why she dies after the dance, uh, and B, why she is dancing at all. So one thing to note, is that the, actually the type of dance is not actually specified in the libretto. But there are two types of fundamental dance from Greece that we think it might be based on. One is the koros, or the round dance, which is a social rite when participants would join in hands and dance in a circle. And then there's the menadic dance, which is a Dionysian solo ecstatic release, transcending the present world, which is probably the one that most productions tend to prefer which usually ends up with Electra kind of stamping around in a struggle. 
um, but a very an explosive and uh, a, a release. And that's kind of why I put catharsis because of the sort of terror and emotional excitement and perhaps sympathy, maybe maybe compassion. I don't know. Uh, so what we're going to see here is I'm going. I'm taking us now back to Electra's opening monologue, where she basically says um, that after Clytemnestra is killed, I'm going to dance. So now we've come to the end of the opera, and they're very happy that Arrest is back, their mother is dead, they are now free, um, Chrysotomus can now go live her life bearing children, and Electra is happy to be released. And we'll see her release end up meaning her own demise. But what we're going to hear here is the dance is going to happen at this moment, so we're going to hear the same music underneath Electra that we heard before as the prophecy comes to pass. <laughs>
it's interesting to see what Hoffmannsthal had to say about Elektra's death at the end, which sort of always confounded me, but, uh, well, it didn't confound me. I guess we kind of knew what had to happen in, in opera at this, in the early 20th century, where women always seem to have to be destroyed, but it still would be nice to have a little bit more explanation about it. Um, but of it, he had to say, in Elektra, the individual is dissolved in the empirical way in which the content of her life explodes outward from the inside, like water, that becomes ice in an earthen jug. Electra is no more Electra, because she has dedicated herself entirely to being Electra. The individual can only remain to endure where a compromise has been struck between the community and the individual. Um, I suppose in layman's terms, basically she has devout, devoted herself so much to avenging her father's death that once it is avenged, there's nothing left of her individuality left because that was all she was. And so as a result, she must perish. Uh, another thing to think about is the fact that Hoffmannsthal's worldview, which as we know was a, a little bit more about um, enjoyment and entertainment and how music can be uh, more accessible perhaps in the way of having uh, set numbers, for example, in Ariadne of Naxos, we know that he endorses more so Chrysostomus's worldview, which is bearing children and having love in her life, as opposed to Electra's sort of total absorption in her tragedy. Um, another thing I want to note is I talked about in, especially in our Orfeo lecture, how over these, taking these Greek tragedies over time, they've gone from being sort of moral plots and then turning instead into these psychological dramas. And we definitely see that here, especially with Electra as sort of the epitome or climax of that journey for us. I wanted to make some conclusions. Uh, so as I love to express, uh, skepticism is my favorite mode of existence. Uh, we don't know much about Greek tragedy. That is the original, how it was originally performed, what it sounded like, what it looked like. We have some guesses. And those guesses have inspired a number of ways which Greek tragedy has then been represented, which we've explored in these lectures through a number of operas. Uh, and the point here is more so that it depends on the listener and how they want to use Greek tragedy to shape their worldview and the world around them. That was Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans discussing opera and Greek drama. This episode marks the end of our season, but stay tuned as we will be back with brand new episodes beginning August 17th. I'm your podcast host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening. <laughs>